This morning, I want to start out with a, just a, a question for everybody. Is, there, is anyone else in here uh, what I would call a chain reaction puker? Like, you know what I mean, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I know there's some of you. Like, you. like, if anybody pukes within the near vicinity of you, like you have these super puke sensors where you're like, I know that somebody puked and you just lose it. Hey, who's, who's with me? Anybody? Anybody? All right. All right. That used to be me. That used to be me. Like uh, if, if, I mean, I could pick it up and I could see it or I could smell it or are you even hearing it and you're like, oh, I got to get out of here because it's about to get really ugly. And then something happened and I'm no longer a chain reaction puker. You guys know what happened, right? I became what? I became a parent, right? I became a parent, uh, and, and, and that's just not me anymore. Uh, there was actually a couple of years ago, uh, we were, I was at a Transformation Zone leadership planning retreat. Uh, Transformation Zones is, a, is an event that the local youth leaders around Marysville put on, and uh, we were at the leadership planning retreat. We were up uh, at the uh, Heartland Retreat Center in Marengo, and we were there, and we were, after a long day of planning, uh, we had decided to eat dinner. They prepared dinner for us, and for this particular retreat, uh, Chelsea had just had our, our second born, uh, Judah, and he was just a month, maybe two months old, and so being the good dad that I am, I instead of leaving her alone uh, at home with the two boys, I said, why don't you guys come with us, and you can just hang out there at the retreat center while we're planning you know, you can eat with us. And so we're there at the table. I'm sitting around the table with my fellow youth leaders and then Chelsea and the boy. And we're eating this nice meal that was prepared for us by the retreat center. And uh, we get through the meal and then they, uh, they served us dessert. And it was a, I don't remember what it was, but it was dessert. So it had to be good. And we're sitting around the table enjoying our dessert. And all of a sudden I look down a, a couple of chairs to Jensen and Jensen begins crying hysterically. Now, our experience with Jensen over the past couple of years uh, told me that when Jensen is sitting down eating, especially when he's eating uh, desserts or he's had some sort of chocolate or something at that time, if he began crying like that, that meant that I immediately needed to remove him from the situation, find my way to the closest restroom because the food that once looked really good on the plate was about to make a second appearance and it wasn't going to look as pretty. So Jensen is crying and I say, oh shoot, here we go. So of course we happen to be at the table that was the furthest away from the exit door, but I pick up Jensen and I make my way. I don't want to run because I don't want to look that silly, but I'm speed walking with Jensen, carrying him, trying to make it to the exit. And I get about halfway there and it just breaks loose. And so I do what anybody would do. I set him down and then I stuck my hands out to catch the puke. Like, what was I going to do with it? <laughs> what? Like, what are you doing, Huff? Like, you don't catch, but I'm, I'm, he's puking in my hands, and all of a sudden I realize, Josh, you can't hold it all, and so I just let it go, and all out in the middle of the floor, he pukes, and the poor retreat people had to, had to clean it up. But I did it because this parenting thing requires you to be all in. Like parenting, if you've experienced parenting, parenting requires us to be immersed in the lives of our children. To be immersed even to the point of catching their puke. 
to immerse ourselves in the messiness, in the grossness, and can I get a witness that kids are sometimes gross? Yeah, kids are sometimes gross. To be a parent is to be immersed in the messiness, in the grossness of our children, even to the point of catching their puke. I still don't know. It still boggles my mind to think, what was going through your head? To think, oh, it's a good idea to just catch it. I don't know. Anyway, a couple of weeks ago, a couple Sundays ago, we began our Sunday morning uh, series called Immerse. And we've been talking about this idea of uh, the harvest and reaping the harvest. And, and it's more about planning. I'm sorry, it's less about planning and it's more about planting. And we've kind of retouched on the idea of planting the gospel. And we've, uh, we've talked about this idea that to, uh, to work in the harvest, we first have to be immersed in what? Somebody remember what the first one was? Immersed in prayer. We have to be immersed in prayer. We have to saturate all that we do in prayer. Then the second week, we talked about this idea of immersing ourselves in Jesus. If we want to share Jesus, which is what I believe we want to do in our community, if we want to share Jesus, we have to know Jesus. We have to be immersed in in Jesus. Every single thing that we do has to be wrapped around Jesus. Jesus has to drive our actions. Jesus has to drive our activities of the church. Jesus has to drive everything that we do. And so we immerse ourselves in Jesus. When we immerse ourselves in Jesus, something very cool starts to happen. We start doing this over and over and we focus on Jesus and we wrap our lives around Jesus and suddenly what we realize and we begin to see that our lives begin to look like Jesus. We begin to do the things that Jesus did. We begin to uh, treat people the way that Jesus treated people. We begin to be like Jesus. Jesus. In fact, the term Christian when it first came about was almost a, uh, a phrase that was mocking of the followers of Jesus. They called them Christians or little Christ because they did what Jesus did. After he was gone, they began to do what Jesus did and act like Jesus. And so they called them Christians or little Christ. I don't know about you, but that's a nickname, mocking or not, that I'm okay with. Like if my life becomes so immersed in Jesus that I begin to look like Jesus and someone calls me a little Christ, then I'm okay with that. Here's one of the things that Jesus did that I want to look at today. Jesus immersed himself in the lives of other people. If we immerse ourselves in Jesus and we begin to do like Jesus did, we will then invest in the lives of other people. We must invest in the lives of other people if we want to follow Jesus. I want to read uh, a real quick scripture just to kind of set the stage for us. If you want to follow along, it's going to be in John chapter 1. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV. You can follow along in whatever you have. John chapter 1, we'll start in verse 14. It says this, <clears throat> The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. I love the way that the, uh, the message paraphrase puts this beginning verse where it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the message, uh, in the message paraphrase, uh, Peterson says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I love that imagery that Peterson provides. God, through Jesus, became one of us and moved into the neighborhood to be one of us, to be like us. This is one of the most mind-blowing concepts of our religion that I have come across. This idea of the incarnation. I want you to make sure you grasp this this morning, that Jesus, God himself, God who is ruler over all, who created everything, God himself through Jesus became one of us, moved into the neighborhood to become us. He left his place in heaven to enter into our mess, to experience pain and experience suffering alongside us. It's fascinating to me, and it's what separates Christianity from other religions. This idea that God would leave his place on high to immerse himself in us. But why? Why did God decide to immerse himself in us in that way? To explore that this morning, I want, to, I want to look at one of the most common things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. In those three years or so when he was walking the, uh, the earth as one of us, one of the most common things that he did in that time was he healed people. Scripture points over and over to these times when Jesus would encounter people who were in need of healing, and he would heal them. He healed the blind man. He healed the guy who his friends lowered him through the roof right at the feet of Jesus, which if you're not like, that's a funny story. Like, think about that for a second. Like, four friends had a crippled friend, and they climbed up onto a roof and lowered his friend through the roof into someone's house and just happened to land at the feet of Jesus. That's funny. <laughs> right, am I right? Like, it's okay to laugh at Bible, Bible stories, right? We're good? Okay. All right, good. Um, Jesus healed people. He healed the woman who had a perpetual bleeding problem as he was walking down the road, and she touched him, and Jesus talked to her, and he healed her. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus healing people. That's what he did. Now, I used to think that the reason that Jesus performed all of these healings, when Jesus came in contact with someone who needed healing, the reason that he would heal them was to, in order to prove a point or to prove who he was. 
that Jesus needed or Jesus desired people to follow him as the son of God. And so he would perform these miracles and these healings so that people could see surely he is the son of God. I used to think that the reason he did that was to prove that he was indeed the son of God. Henry Nouwen, in his book, Compassion, which was totally transformational in my life, gave me this brand new insight into Jesus's reasonings behind his healings. Jesus didn't heal people to prove who he was. Jesus didn't need to prove that he was the son of God. That's not why Jesus healed people. He healed people because he had compassion on them. Scripture says that when he came across someone who needed healed, he was moved with compassion, and so he healed them. Now, I want to take a look at the Greek term that is translated into compassion, and I'm by no means a Greek scholar, so forgive me if I butcher the pronunciation of this word, but it's a really fun word, and so I want to tell it to you guys. The Greek word that is translated into compassion is this, splagnizomai. That's fun, isn't it? Splagnizomai. I want you guys to say that with me. Be careful. Sometimes you spit when you say that word, so like, don't spit on the person in front of you. All right, Say it with me, though. Splagnizomai. Yeah, one more time. Splagnizomai. That's fun. I love that word. The word that is translated into compassion is splagnizomai. Now, when we look at the definition of splagnizomai, that Greek word, that original word, it is to be moved as in one's bowels. Think about that for a minute. Splagnizomai is to be moved as in one's bowels. You guys know what a bowel movement is, right? To be moved as in one's bowels. Or to say it differently, to feel it in the depths of who you are. To get that gut feeling deep down inside. So when scripture paints this picture of Jesus and he encounters someone who needs healing, someone who is hurt and someone who is broken, and he sees them and it says that he was moved by compassion, what they're saying, what he's saying is Jesus literally felt it deep down inside of him. In the very core of his being, he felt that hurt and was moved to action. When Jesus saw hurting people, he hurt with them. He felt it deep down inside. He was moved at his gut to action. So the reason that Jesus performed these healings was not to prove a point, but it was because he had compassion on them. And when he saw them hurt, He hurt, and it led him to action. That's what it is to immerse with other people, to be so close to them that you recognize when they are hurting, and you see them in their pain and their suffering, and you hurt with them, but you don't just hurt with them. It leads you to action. When I caught Jensen's puke that day, It wasn't to prove that I'm a really good dad. Like I've had those youth leaders, like after like that story sticks with them, and like, you just stuck your hand out and caught him. That was awesome. Like it wasn't to prove a point to them that I was like super dad. It wasn't to prove that I was dad at all. Why did I catch his puke? It's because the love of a parent required me to be so immersed in his life, to be right there beside him in his sickness even to the point 
of me getting messy, even to the point of me being inconvenienced. Again, not to prove a point, but because I love him and in the midst of his grossness, I'm there. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. God, through Jesus, in the midst of our messiness and brokenness, didn't come to prove a point, but came because he loved us so much that he wanted to be right there with us as one of us. But here's the other thing. It doesn't end with Jesus. Later in the book of John, in in chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus sent his disciples, and therefore Jesus sends you and I in the same way that the Father sent him. Well, how did the Father send him? You reverse a little bit in the the book of John to John chapter 3, verse 16. I guarantee you know this one. When When Jesus talks, or John talks about the way that Jesus was sent, he was sent to earth as one of us. Why? Because of the love of the Father. Jesus, the way that Jesus was sent was out of love to be immersed in people's lives, particularly lost people's lives. Lost people matter to God. And because Jesus sends us in the same way that he himself was sent, lost people must matter to us. Jesus sends us in the way that the Father sent him. Jesus sends us to be immersed in lost people. If someone matters to us, we simply cannot show that from a distance. God couldn't effectively communicate his love for us by remaining in heaven. So he came as Jesus to immerse in us, to rub shoulders with us, to join us in our pain and our brokenness and our suffering. And that's exactly what we're called to do. To immerse ourselves in others is not to simply extend a hand to pull them out of their mess from a distance. Instead, it's to jump in their mess with them and walk alongside them. I want to show a brief, just two-minute video clip uh, from a lady named Brene Brown that I think paints this picture better than my words can. It, in this particular video, it's kind of more psychology-based, and so it talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy, but I think it also paints the picture of the difference between standing on the sideline, declaring a person's need for Jesus, and instead immersing ourselves in order to be Jesus to them right where they're at. Take a look at this video. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, 
not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. (laughs) Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling rarely if ever does an empathic response begin with at least I had a yeah and we do it all the time because you know what someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now, I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. To be all in is to immerse ourselves in others. To be willing to get messy. To not stand from a distance and offer a hand up. Instead, it's going to their level to walk with them. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. A little over a year ago when Chelsea and I started our foster care journey, we decided that we didn't want to just commit to helping the kids that were in our house. We wanted to commit to helping the biological parents, particularly the biological mom. I will tell you that it would be easier if our only focus was on loving the kids while they were in our home. And if we would have decided to maintain a distance from the bio mom, it would simply be a transaction where we dropped the kids off for a visit and then we came back and brought them and we just loved the kids in our house. It would save us a lot of frustration. It would save us a lot of banging our heads against the wall. But we truly believe that God has called us to immerse ourselves in the moms as they walk through this difficult and lonely road. To be a source of encouragement and support and love. And the frustration is immense and the heartache is painful but it's what Jesus did for us. And it's what we've committed to do because he has called us to do likewise. But it's not just a call for a select few. It is the way of Christ. 
want to look real quick at one more scripture as we kind of figure out how do we put this into practice, this call to immerse in other people. And this is from Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to read from the message. So you don't need to turn there. You can just listen. Luke chapter 10. Later, the master selected 70 and sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he intended to go. He gave them this charge. What a huge harvest and how few the harvest hands. So on your knees, ask the God of the harvest to send harvest hands on your way, but be careful. This is hazardous work. You're like lambs in a wolf pack. Travel light, comb and toothbrush, and no extra luggage. Don't loiter and make small talk with everyone you meet along the way. When you enter a home, greet the family. Peace. If your greeting is received, then it's a good place to stay. But if it's not received, take it back and get out. Don't impose yourself. Stay at one home, taking your meals there. For a worker deserves three square meals. Don't move from house to house looking for the best cook in town. When you enter into a town and are received, eat what they set before you. Heal anyone who is sick and tell them God's kingdom is right on your doorstep. When you enter into a town and are not received, go out in the street and say, the only thing we got from you is the dirt on, your, on our feet and we're giving it back to you. Did you have any idea that God's kingdom was right on your doorstep? Three very simple things I want to pull from this passage regarding immersing and going and being sent. First of all, Jesus calls his followers to join him in going to other people. Notice that Jesus didn't do this by himself. Jesus also didn't even just call the 12 disciples. He sent out the 70 to do the work of immersing in others. We talked before um, about this idea of the 70 being sent out. And the number 70 being a combination of the seven and the 10, numbers that represent completeness. So when Jesus first sends out the 12 and then sends out the 70, it's as if to say that this is the job of all of us. All of us are to immerse ourselves in other people. Go, all of us, not just the pastors, the Sunday school teachers, the small group leaders, all of us, complete being sent out. The other thing that we see is Jesus sent the disciples before they were fully ready and fully mature in their walk with Christ. At this point, there had been no cross and no resurrection. Therefore, there was no realization that we have power over the ultimate, which is death. There had been no Pentecost, meaning that there was not the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to walk alongside them as they were sent out. Before they were fully ready and fully mature, Jesus sent them out. Suggestions are that the disciples were sent out with as few as three weeks of following Jesus, and they were sent out. Most of us in this room have had a lot more than a few weeks with Jesus. And Jesus' call for us is to go, to immerse ourselves in other people. So here's the commitment that we're asking. To be all in, to immerse ourselves in others, means that we are committing to cultivating relationships. That's it. We are committing to cultivating relationships. We want to just point out a few practical ways that, that we can put this 
into practice, that we can apply this and we can develop and cultivate relationships. First, I want to mention just two resources that if you're a reader uh, and you would like to read some, uh, first of all, Compassion by Henry Nouwen, which I referenced earlier, is a fantastic book that, as I mentioned, transformed my life, and I would highly encourage you to pick up a copy of that. The second book is The Art of Neighboring. Uh, In The Art of Neighboring, the author kind of presents this premise that what if we were to truly love our neighbors as ourselves? What if I really, like, actually loved my neighbor as myself? Do you know what that would require? And when I say this, I'm stepping on my own toes. (laughs) To do that, to truly love my neighbor as myself, I've got to know my neighbors. I've got to get to know my neighbors. Uh, we, were, uh, we had Jensen's birthday party yesterday, and afterwards my niece, Kinley, came over to our house, and they were, we were outside uh, playing with Jensen's, one of his new toys, and our neighbor pulled in, and, and we, uh, we, we, know, we know our neighbors and we've talked to them, um, but as soon as they were pulling into their driveway, Kinley walked over to the driveway and just wanted to just wanted to greet them as soon as they got out of her, out of their truck. Like she just wanted to meet them. And I thought, man, like how much better would we be at neighboring if we were like Kinley? If when our neighbors came home, like we were excited to see them and say, "Hey, I'm Kinley. What's your name?" <laughs> if we were to truly be neighbors, to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. We got to know our neighbor. Another way to apply this commitment is to intentionally commit to three relationships. Someone who's investing in you, someone you are investing in, and a pre-believer in whom you are investing in yourself. Do you have someone who's investing in you? Do you have a spiritual mentor who's investing in you? If you don't, as a church, we would love to help you find that. Do you also have someone that you are mentoring? Again, we would love to help you connect in that way. In fact, if, you, uh, if you're like, man, I really need someone to mentor me in my walk with Jesus, or I feel like I'm at the place where I can mentor someone else in their relationship with Jesus, I would encourage you to grab one of the cards in front of you and uh, just put your name on there and on the back, just say, I want to be a mentor or I need a mentor. And we would love to help you make those connections. But are you investing, are you committing in other relationships? Relationships where someone is mentoring you, where you're mentoring someone and you're investing in a pre-believer. Maybe the only people that you know are Christians. Can I suggest that you might be hanging out in the wrong place? Don't get me wrong, I love that you're here. I'm a pastor, I want you to be at church. But if the only people that you know are Christians, Maybe that's the place to start. That you identify someplace that you can hang out or you can immerse in lost people. Now I suggest you pray, you begin to pray that God would show you those people that you can begin to show Jesus to. The final couple of strategies that we want to just just pass on to you uh, come from actually a pastor in Australia. Their church uses this acronym that's called BELLS, and we're going to skip the two L's, but we're going to go with the B and the E. The B is blessing. Be a blessing. 
What would it look like if you were to bless three people each week? That every week you committed to bless three people. And by bless, I simply mean to encourage them, to pray for them, to send them a note, maybe to buy a meal for them, to bless three people. What if you blessed one person from your local church each week? And what if you blessed another fellow believer who goes to another church? You guys do know there's other churches in Marysville where believers are meeting, right? What if you blessed another believer in another church? And then what if you blessed someone who is not yet a believer? What if our church committed to blessing three people each week? And then the E in the acronym stands for EAT. Anybody else like to eat? I like to eat. Yeah, Judy, I saw that hand real quick. Yes, me too. There's something about eating together with people. When you gather together at the table, it's like all of our walls and our barriers come down. When we join together at the table with someone, suddenly all of us are on equal ground. That we are gathered together around this meal. What if we committed to being intentional in who we ate with throughout the week? Maybe simply identifying two people, two meals that you can be very intentional about throughout the week. What if you intentionally spent one of your meals, whether it be breakfast, lunch, dinner, or even coffee at Fifth Street Cafe? What if you intentionally identified a fellow believer that you could eat with and someone who doesn't know Jesus yet that you could eat with? To be all in with Jesus is to immerse in people's lives. What would it look like if we were fully immersed in people? The truth is, is that it's tough. It's messy. It's frustrating. It's heartbreaking. But it's the way of Christ. It's so messy, in fact, that people might even begin to question your sanity or question what you're doing. Think of the reaction of the good church people when Jesus began to immerse himself in other people's lives. I want to finish with a quote uh, from Henry Nouwen's book, Compassion, that I think summarizes this very well. Nouwen says, Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. When we look at compassion this way, it becomes clear that something more is involved than a general kindness or tenderheartedness. It is not surprising that compassion, understood as suffering with, often evokes in us a deep resistance and even protest. We are inclined to say this is self-flagellation, this is masochism, this is a morbid interest in pain, this is a sick desire. It is important for us to acknowledge this resistance and to recognize that suffering is not something we desire or to which we are attracted. On the contrary, it is something we want to avoid at all costs. Therefore, compassion is not among our most natural responses. We are, in, we are pain avoiders 
and we, are, and we consider anyone who feels attracted to suffering abnormal, or at least very unusual. The way of compassion, the way of Christ, the way of immersing ourselves in others is not a natural reaction. When we live this kind of life, it goes against society. It goes against what makes sense in a kingdom of worldly values. It goes against American values. Even if you claim America to be a Christian nation, the way of Christ goes against those values. To truly immerse yourself in others is to go against the kingdom of the world. But can I tell you, we were made for another world. We were made for another kingdom that's not bound by worldly values. It is the way of Christ. So I want to spend just a minute in reflection. In just a second, I'm going to read a couple of questions that I want you to think about. When I'm done, I just want you to simply sit in silence for just two minutes. Think about the call and the way of Christ. And then Pastor Bob's going to close us in prayer. Ask yourself these questions. Who can you immerse in? Who have you excluded because you weren't willing to get your hands dirty? Who have you excluded because in order to immerse in them would go against the American way? Who have you excluded because in order to immerse in them would raise eyebrows among the church people? What can you do to immerse in their lives, to join them and walk with them?